All right, uh, we are in the study of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 18. If you're new to Redemption, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. If this is your first Sunday, you've caught us kind of in the center section of the study of Exodus. <clears throat> if you're not familiar with Exodus, Exodus is a simple story about the rescue of God's people from slavery to Egypt as they journey their way to the promised land. Pretty simple, right? Um, Last week, we talked about the beginning of the wanderings through the wilderness. Um, next week, Neil's going to teach on um, the giving of God's law. So we get that next week, which is really great. Um, and the remaining 20 chapters really are the, the beginning of the, the confirmation of the growing and the transformation of the people into the image bearers of God as they receive the instructions of God and do what he says. So we see that now from the, to the end. Um, there's something else we were doing with this story as well <clears throat> that we've been learning, and that is to, to see where there are these, I'd call them gospel shadows or New Testament parallels or kind of types of the Christian life in the story of Israel and the Exodus and all that kind of thing. For instance, as an example, just so you can kind of warm to this thought, as Israel was enslaved in Egypt, <clears throat> the scriptures talk about the slavery that every man and woman lives under, the slavery of sin. In bondage to sin is how the scriptures call it. And just like the scriptures in, in, in Exodus talk about <clears throat> one man named Moses leading Israel out of its bondage, in the New Testament we have the one man, Jesus, who leaves the saints out of their bondage to sin. And you can just see every parallel to that in the story of Exodus. So hopefully you're getting into that and you're seeing that point as we make it every week. Last week we talked about the beginning realities of wilderness living and how we share so much in common with Israel in that way. If we change wilderness to, to our life and the trouble of our life, you knew get the analogy. In life and in living, we, we experience difficulties and challenges and confusions and, and doubts, to be honest with you. Sometimes we experience anger with God or, or questioning whether God's gonna pull through for us. And that's a reality. I mean, everyone could share that. This is my experience in my life, in my wilderness. But there's something else we share with Israel. There's a, there's a sin problem in us. And that sin problem can, in, in these experiences, turn against God, grumble against God, complain about God, doubt God. All the stuff comes out of us. But we also learned this too last week, that God's in the middle of the wilderness. Every place you find yourself, God is providing, he's protecting, and he's bringing his presence to bear as he forms you into his people. And there's a promise in that, a good, uh, a, a good experience for us to hear that. <clears throat> Let's call that lesson one of the wilderness. Today we have lesson two, okay? And if you're one of those people who like to read ahead, you, you may have read chapter 18 and go, uh, what's the big deal? Like, why would we take a week on chapter 18? It seems like you could just make a mention, and I suppose you could, um, but we, we do have as an obligation today to deal with this chapter, and I would just tell you fundamentally, this is how you approach places, subjects, and or, or particular chapters in a Bible where you go, I don't know how that fits or why it matters to me. Sounds like organization. I would tell you that the Holy Spirit of God put it in the scriptures for a reason. It has importance. And so we need to lean into the story today to see its importance in our life, these particular experiences with Moses in specificness. All right, I was trying to synthesize where I'd go uh, this week on this chapter, and to be fair, the chapter breaks in two. 
at verse 12 and 13 that splits there. To be honest, if I were doing it slow, I'd do a sermon on the first 12 verses and one on the back half. I'm going to lean mostly on the back half, but I don't want to neglect the front half. So this is going to sound in these next eight minutes like this one doesn't connect to the next one, but now you know why, okay? Um, Let's look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 12, and I'll tell you where this fits in kind of a thought as we get ready to go into the last half. Verse 18, um, chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershon, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that God had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered you the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and to Aaron and came to all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. If I were preaching this alone, I would call this the 101 of evangelism. In this particular story between Jethro and Moses, you see a type of the way we go about communicating and living our life around the people who don't know Jesus and the hope of forgiveness that he offers. Let, Let me prove my point. The first four words tell us the condition of Jethro. Jethro, a priest of Midian, a priest of a false god. Jethro didn't serve Yahweh. He didn't know anything other than what he had heard through the grapevine about the things God was doing in Egypt. He was an unbeliever. He happened to be in the family. Um, So Jethro's spiritual condition was as an unbeliever, but look at verse seven. Moses has a particular demeanor with, this, with his father-in-law. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Now, by this time in the story, Moses is a big deal. He was a big deal in Egypt, and he's leading two million refugees to a promised land. Moses is a big deal, way bigger deal than Jethro. What position does Moses take with his father-in-law? He bows low in humility. He kisses and appreciates his father-in-law. There's all sorts of respect, demeanor of love that you see there that is a type of the way in which we go about our witness in the world. We love people who don't know Christ. We respect people in humility. We care and we serve these people, these people that don't have hope apart from God moving in their life. That, that is represented in this story. And you also see the message that we share. In uh, verse eight, Moses shared a gospel, a good news story. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. Stop right there. That's what you do. That's what I do. 
You, you, you tell your lost friends that God rescued you, God gave you forgiveness, and Jesus was punished on your behalf. You tell people the good news that all their sins can be wiped out. They can have a relationship with their creator. You tell them the hope of tomorrow and the life they can have today. You talk about the blessings. And Moses sat down with this unbelieving father-in-law and said, let me tell you everything God did, how he flexed his muscles for his people. <laughs> That's sort of like what we do when we talk to folks, Right? And look at the outcome. You see Jethro's, con you see Jethro's conversion. Verse 12, or let's back up a little bit. Verse nine, you see, first of all, after he hears the good news, Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done. Now, by the way, you should be seeing familiarities in your own life because this is exactly how it went for everybody in the room. Someone introduced the good news to you and you went, could it be true? Could it be possible? Could I be saved? Could my sins be forgiven? And suddenly there's a joy. People talk about this, this transition of life, this where burdens were lifted and this amazing joy comes. Jethro experiences it here. And then you see his confession in verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. <laughs> that is the confession of Jethro. I, I serve the pagan God. Now I know he's nothing. He is nothing. I submit to one. There's only one, and it's that, that God. And you see, ultimately, his worship in verse 12. He offered a, burnt, offered a burnt offering and sacrifices to the Lord. You have in a snapshot right here how it works in telling the good news story. And by the way, how it always goes with who God saves. You go to the lost, you go with love and respect. You tell them the good news of what God offers, and you watch God produce joy, confession, and worship, and every person in this room has that same experience. You're here because he's done that, amen? So okay, set that aside, lesson one that we're not preaching, all right? Um, but at least you have a place where you can put those 12 verses, and let me get to the, to, the, to the weighty part, at least as far as what I'm gonna deal with, the last half of chapter 18. And again, giving it a title or giving it some kind of banner over it, this is where God gives wisdom to his people. <clears throat> Look at 13 and 14. The next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is it that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Do you understand what's going on here? Uh, most scholars, writers would suggest up to two million Jews in the wilderness. Moses was leading a nation of people, two million. I grabbed a Phoenix map and I said, well, let us bring context. So if you took Gilbert, Mesa, Tempe, Scottsdale, Peoria, Surprise, Glendale, you have around two million people. Now can you imagine all the issues that reside in those cities? And just imagine the burden of the instructions of God to give to everybody in that, in that amount of place, right? And just imagine one man alone as the narrow spot in the giant funnel of discernment and truth, Moses. And there he sits, sun up, sundown, every day. No wonder, no wonder Jethro looks over and goes, Ah, this is weird. All right. 
To say that Moses would be fried is a massive understatement. I don't know anybody could survive four hours of this, let alone sun up to sundown. There's something else that should be obvious to you in this narrative. Not only is Moses worn out, but how do you think the people are doing? Equally worn out and frustrated. I can only imagine long, huge, long, long lines, many, many hours of waiting, hoping, hoping, hoping you can get to Moses. Probably not today. Go back home, go to sleep, get up, go back, get in line, wait, hopefully get in line to see Moses, finally get your chance. And you know what problems do, right? Problems don't resolve themselves. They don't, don't go away. So here your problem, your crisis, your confusion is over here brewing and you can't get an answer or resolve the problem. And so what happens to the problems that you don't respond to? They just get bigger. So you got crisis all over the place. You got the tension that Moses feels with the burden of all the people. You got the people wanting to get an answer and you got the problems getting worse. Are you tracking so far? Okay. And there you have what Jethro witnessed. Now, there is not a person in the room, I don't care how old you are, that would look at this and go, oh, well, that's just plain crazy. I got an idea. How about organize? How about structure something to meet needs? And every person in here would, would see that right, right away. And I would suggest to you, if you can see it, everyone there could see it too. So why, why do we have this situation? What is the deal? What's going on? What's the roadblock? How come Moses doesn't do it differently? Now, I need you to really, really listen to me so you don't run out of here with the wrong words and miss my point. Do you know what the problem is with Moses? Sincerity is. Let me prove it to you. Look at 14 through 16. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was, he was doing for all the people, he said, what is it that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? This is Moses' response. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. What did Moses say? People have needs, people have questions, people need to be taught. That, in my mind, goes in the good category, right? Not a single thing that Moses offered as an answer would be like, oh my goodness, Moses, get a clue. It's all good stuff. And look at Jethro's response, verse 17 and 18. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. If, if you could, and you can once in a while, you can add a little narrative for clarity here. I suppose there could be like in the blank spaces another part to Jethro's response to Moses. Moses, your sincerity is killing you. You think you're helping, but you're really hurting yourself and other people. That could be in here because that's exactly what Jethro means. So what are you thinking right now? What crosses your mind when you see something like this? It may be uncomfortable, maybe not. You might not hear this stuff very often and I'm okay with that, but let me just give you something to think about. One of the most detrimental things in our Christian life for ourselves and other people is when we individually make every want or need a call from God. Did you hear what I said? You, you don't even know how detrimental it is to others 
you will experience how bad it is for you when you make every want or need a call from God. Have you ever heard the word burnout? Yeah? It shows up in church um, from time to time. Um, If you're not in vocational ministry, like you're not paid to do it and you're just serving a lot because your heart is true and you're sincere sunshine, you want to help, you want to, and I'm not putting that down, that's all good, that's all good. And you run headlong into service, giving your life, giving your money, giving your time, you're doing all that stuff. Well, here's what I know happens. I've been doing this too long. People run as hard as they can and then they quit. And then they wander off and try to recover on their own and then they come back to try something else and they run as hard as they can and then they quit. They wander off like dogs that have been run over the street and they try to keep that rhythm up. If you're paid to do ministry, they've invented this wonderful word called sabbatical, okay? And you could be whatever. I, I know people that are in their 30s going, I need, a, I need a break. I'm still waiting for Neil to give me one of those things. Um, so why do we do it? Oh, oh we, could, we could create a list of bad things, bad reasons, right? We could. I'm going to leave it alone. But you, you could go down... Uh, Insecurity, pride, fear of man, the American success-driven thing. You could, you could make, we could preach a whole sermon on the bad reasons why we do stupid things, but that's not what's happening with Moses. He's got good reasons for doing stupid things. And sometimes these things, these things that we're driven to, man, they can, they can get the best of us. A lot of times the... It's because of care and sincerity. We see needs. We want to help. So we want to do everything. So we try. And so you tell me, people. You tell me what happens. If you try to do everything, this is the rhythm I've seen. You run as hard as you can at everything you see. You stop. You collapse. You try to recover. You go to the doctor. You feel bad. You let people down. Sound familiar? Maybe a little bit. Can you hear Jethro's words? What you're doing is not good. That's the sermon. That's what Jethro says to Moses. Well, let's, let's uh, do this. Uh, I'm certain there's way more detail to the discussion than what I'm going to offer you today, but I, I thought it would be good for me to give you a cause and a cure, um, at least. Let's deal with the cause first. I will tell you where this comes from because we have the priorities of what God wants for us out of order. I call these Moses scenarios that we see here. They happen because we're feeling more than we're thinking. Do you understand? By the way, it's probably no newsflash to you. We live in a time and a world that has given their entire life to their feelings. Everything they feel is the greatest reality to them. And this is just one man's observation, but like a lot of things, they creep into the church. And that kind of stuff, that kind of thinking, feelings preeminent, it does show up here. It does affect the good that we do. Now, I understand, and this is at least my observation, our our priorities haven't yet jettisoned wisdom, although my greatest fear is that eventually will happen. Like there will be no one who will put up with sound doctrine, no one who wants to hear wisdom. And eventually, we're just going to be a bleeding heart group of people who feel our way through everything. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm trying to tell you what it is. So um, let me just suggest to you, we have put feelings on the top, tippy top of the list 
of what we care about, what we think God cares about, and it drives everything we do. Let, let me just do this. Let me, let me tell you God's priority. I won't give you the list. I'm just going to put number one out there, and then you're going to know why this is possibly an issue. The number one priority on God's list for you is wisdom, and it's not even close. It is way, way, way above all other things. God's truth, God's wisdom. Let me share with you a couple of passages to try to make my point. The wisdom writer, wisest man who ever lived, wrote this section in Proverbs about the value and importance of wisdom. And he says it's so strong, it's like undeniable, and yet God put it here to defend the, the power of wisdom. And this is what he says in Proverbs chapter four. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Don't forsake her wisdom and see, and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Other translations and paraphrases add some more color to it. The King James Version actually says wisdom is the principal thing. That's code for the supreme thing. Top, top of the list, the most important. The NIV says get wisdom though it costs you everything you have Eugene Peterson's paraphrased, take this to heart, do what I tell you, and live. Sell everything and buy wisdom. Above all and before all, do this, get wisdom. Chapter three of Proverbs, there's a great outline. I don't have time to teach all of it, but the writer puts in here kind of the, the gift of wisdom, how it just continues to add these wonderful, beautiful um, things to our life. He says in chapter three, verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. If I had a line out in the courtyard and I said, guaranteed blessing, come here. This whole room would stand behind the line. And that's exactly what the writer is saying about wisdom. Stand here, get blessing every time. He goes on to say, she is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compared to her. She's most valuable. It'll be life for your soul. How many people are looking for life? Stability, your foot will not stumble. It's safety, do not be afraid of sudden terror. And it's confidence, the Lord will be your confidence. It is security, it's peace. In chapter eight of Proverbs, again, Solomon says, wisdom is better than everything you have, everything, it's not even close. And that is one small, tiny little section of talking about the value of wisdom in a sea of wisdom. As far as the scriptures are concerned, wisdom is above all other things because wisdom affects all other things. And it doesn't work any other way. Put wisdom up there and it affects your feelings. Put wisdom up there, it affects your future. Put wisdom up there, it affects your life. Put wisdom up there, it affects your peace. Put wisdom up there, it affects your family. Put wisdom up here, it affects your future. Wisdom affects all things. It's pre the preeminent thing. Now, I know by looking in your eyes, you knew this. None of you are trying to argue with me right now. I'm not telling you something you don't know, so why do I bring it up? For the simple fact that a lot of us are putting our feelings ahead of wisdom. It's true. When the Hebrew writers talked about the source of our emotions and our feelings, they all understood it as coming from the belly. 
the gut. So it could be said sort of like this. Like, your feelings, your emotions is guttural. It's kind of crusty. It's kind of grumbly. It's desire. Lust is a great word to describe the reaction of feeling it in your gut. I just want it. I just want it. I'm feeling it. When the writers of Scripture, Hebrew writers, thought about decisions and your will and your thought life, it placed the source of that in the heart. And that should sound strange to you because our culture has totally reversed the language in talking about the source of things. We say our feelings come from our heart. We say things like this, and I'm certain you've heard it. I just feel in my heart to do this. I just feel in my heart to do that, right? You might have even used that. And what that says, I'm sorry to tell you, is that feelings are your priority. And when you place them at the source of your heart, you're telling everyone they can't speak into it at all. Because heart's my business. Heart's the core of who I am. If you actually said it like it really was, you would get a lot of company. If you said, hey, I'm just feeling in my gut a lot of lust today, people would go, hey, brother, let me just help you with your thinking. You're kind of being stupid, right? If you said it like it, was tr- like it really is, you'd get confronted, but we don't. We say, my feelings come from the source of my heart, and who's going to go after my heart? Nobody. Nobody's going to confront those things. No. If you want proof of our lack of interest for wisdom, all you have to look no farther than our autonomy. We make huge, huge life decisions without giving any single thought to having someone else share an insight. Why? Because we already know in our gut our desire and no one's gonna pull us off of it. That's the truth. And we live in a culture that's created all sorts of terms and all sorts of categories for people who would want to push into it. You're not making me feel safe. You're, you're, you're making me feel insecure here. You're, you've, got a, you've got a backup. That's a, an aggression. I, I need to be left alone. I mean, we use all sorts of terms in our crippled world to define our autonomy. And uh, that's just the way it is. And let me tell you, the result of that is misery. And I suppose some of you could preach this sermon now. It is. Let me give you a rule. It's not in the scriptures, um, but maybe it should be. Stupid decisions equal stressed life. Okay? Too many people who follow their stomachs. There's just so many of us. And they happen to be the most overwhelmed, crippled people I know. They're just going with their instincts, going with their feelings, giving themselves to their desires. And, 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 and there's something else to be aware of, too, by the way. Sometimes guttural decisions, sometimes guttural feelings like that of wanting and lust, they look like it. You can just look at some decision we're making and go, well, that just looks like you're clueless. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the guttural decisions look like good things, like the scenario of Moses. Like Moses, he's caring for people, he's sharing the word of God, he's helping resolve disputes, and everyone in here, we go, that's good, that's good, that's good. It was, it was Jethro who said, no, 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 what you're doing is not good. So I guess what I'm trying to say, and this again would be another rule, stupid is always stupid, sometimes, stupid, sometimes good is stupid too. You just have to have wisdom to know the difference. Does that make sense? Moses needed Jethro's words because the good he was doing was actually hurting So let let me just back up and give these thoughts again so we don't miss them. So far we've seen that even good intentions can hurt you and other people. Everyone tracking with that? 
We've also seen that wisdom is far superior to our feelings. Now let me give you the cure. And as far as this particular scenario goes for Moses and how he is supposed to hand out the good for the needs of the people, how is he supposed to do this? Look at verse 19. Now obey my voice. Now this is Jethro talking to Moses. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, one, and this people also will go to their place in peace. It will go good for you, Moses, and it will go good for them. They're coming here for peace, and they're not getting it. And if you listen to my voice, if you heed wisdom, you will pull this off. Sounds like a great idea, shared load, right? You, you just tell Moses something practical like, hey, don't do this alone. Have other people do with it with you. And you would look at that, well, that's really smart. And it should sound familiar because the New Testament part of it picks that idea up for the church and says that's exactly how we do ministry. We use a word around here all the time. It's called the one another's. The one another's are the structure in which all the good in the world and in the church are accomplished. The one another's. The Testament's clear about that through a body of believers. Let, let me just remind you of a couple of things um, from the, the New Testament that help make that point obvious. God has designed us to belong to each other. And that starts there with an understanding that we aren't, Autonomous. We're not alone. We're not private. We can't just walk away. We're a part of a functioning body. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. You get the point. You've heard this before. You're not alone. You're not autonomous. We're together. We together form the one singular body and expression of God's ministry in the world and in the church. That's what he says. Let me add some more to this. Not only has God designed us to belong to each other, he's also designed us to grow together, dependent on each other. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, from Christ, whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. The whole body makes the body grow. You're not alone. You can't even grow up in Christ alone. You can't take your Bible and go to the woods and discover it. The whole body makes the body grow. Let me add one more. So, so far we've seen that God has designed us to belong to each other and to grow dependent on each other. But this last one that fits here, God has designed us so that our service is accomplished together through the multifaceted, many colored gifts that God gives the church. First Peter 4, as each has received a gift, which he clearly does at conversion, he says, use it to serve. That's the truth. The way this great good, this overwhelming good is accomplished is through 
the variety of colors of gifts that exist in the church throughout all the world to accomplish the glory of God. Do you understand that, church? No? Okay, because I can go back and start over. I don't know. Now, you want to believe that this is from God? Let me prove it to you. Look at verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Now, we have seen so far in Exodus many, many amazing miracles. And this isn't as big as the Red Sea, but it's got to be close. Whenever a man listens to his father-in-law, you have an amazing miracle taking place, okay? He heard the word of his father-in-law and changed his course. Talk about the wisdom in this. Do you see that the load of the many are a shared load? You see that's the way, the New Testament way, and actually the way that Jethro advises Moses? Let me encourage you, learning to say no to good things personally for the sake of God's good ultimately is one of the hardest things to learn. I talk about this, I talk about this, it seems like all the time. Guys in ministry, friends of mine, uh, people I know who in their big hearts are running headlong into everything. The hardest skill in the world is, is learn to say no to good things personally for the sake of God's good ultimately and for his glory. It's hard, but I will tell you how you solve that problem, whatever's difficult, wisdom can advise. And see, this is where the, the one another's with counsel comes in. We, we get someone to share that with and say, hey, what do you think about this? And people can give good reflection to my heart and my attitudes and my desires and my, and my feelings at the time. Does that make sense? Okay, let me leave you with one gospel absolute that I think will change the game, I think. You will not be able to survive or thrive until you realize there's only one Savior and you're not him. Right? Moses couldn't be everything for Israel. He wanted to. He sat there every day, sun up to sundown, with all the sincere thoughts and the right actions in place, but he could not be everything for Israel. You can't be everything for everyone either. Jesus alone is the Savior of all situations and stories. He alone is the Savior. He's the Savior of every family and every part of the world and every need and every hurt and every pain and every church. Jesus alone is the Savior. Now, let me just get you to say with me this. He is one Savior. Say that. One Savior. Many saved. Say it. One mission. You get it? He alone rescues all stories in the context of us, the multifaceted, multicolored church, doing what it's been gifted to do. No one's called to carry it all. So I just call it the collective work of the hands and feet of Jesus around the world is accomplishing the mission of Christ. It is what we see in a story like this. So you might just write off and go, whatever, it's organization for Israel. But it really confronts an issue that happens everywhere. People in their sincerity run into things, doing things, carrying things, burn themselves out and hurt other people. And it's under the guise of good and it actually is not good. Wisdom helps us. Do you understand? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we do ask uh, today that you would give us your mind. We are gonna ask um, for wisdom. God, we're gonna 
fight against feelings that come from our gut and that mislead us and harm us and other people. God, we're going to say thank you for this story as it exposes a potential in us, a trouble in us. I pray for this body. Some are under the pressure of being Moses. I pray, God, that they can relax, trust you, and believe that one another's play that role in solving that problem. Some of us in this room struggle with caring whatsoever about wisdom as it pertains to being more important than our feelings. I pray, God, that we can confess that as sin. Help us to be people of truth who love like you do and serve like you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.